In Canada, I'm your host Tom, and with me, as always, are Dan and Ward. Because apparently Mike is uh, battling the powers of Nurgle right now, and Steve is in fucking Hawaii. Yeah, he has fled the country under questionable circumstances. Sure, let's go with that. Yeah, probably not. He's on a vacation with family. Um, the bastard. <laughs> uh, it's anyway. cool. It's only like minus 25 later this week, so we got this. Yeah, so we know what Steve's doing this week. Uh, Dan, how about you? What have you been working on? Uh, I actually painted up another... Ty- well, I, should, I shouldn't say another. I painted up my first Ty Phantom yep. uh, for X-Wing. He's got that cool um, recloaking effect going on and some OSL on like, the cannons on the front and everything. Looks badass, I saw it. So, that was pretty cool, and the second one is, um, like, airbrush, base coat, wash, and um, the beginning of, like, the cloak fade is in place on him as well. Oh, cool. So he's... Are you doing both of them blue? They'll they'll both be the same. Uh, One will be, like, the back is cloaking, and the other is going to be, like, the front is cloaking. Oh. So that you'll still be quite easily able to tell them apart. And they complete each other. Absolutely. And I, I might, um, <laughs> I might uh, go and add a couple of those like Sunterfell style stripes on the panels of the second one as well. Like just the back of the panels, obviously the front of the panels will be cloaked. Maybe on the decloaked sections. Yes, I yes. was going to say. Mm-hmm. Yes. Mm-hmm. So that's uh, that's definitely been pretty fun so far. Um, as a side note, painting little tiny lightning bolts on textured solar panel surfaces not quite as easy as the flat armor panels next to it. So. I'll try, okay. to, I'll try to place my uh, lightning bolts on the second one a little bit more carefully. Mm-hmm. But uh, yeah, that's it for the most part. And doing those X-Wing cards, um, always doing up more of those as I get more cool artwork or just really bad ideas for Star Wars jokes or s- something like that. So Works for me. Ward, yeah. we know you did nothing. I've been trying to build my hobby basement and... You got some really cool looking glass cabinets. <laughs> yeah, there's, I'm actually amazed. He's got more glass cabinets in his house than than I do, and obviously, when I was there, I didn't see a single painted model. They're they're in the cases, <laughs> packed. To okay, more unpacked. So you've got that massive cabinet. Yes. How full oh, will that get? One? The big glass, the glass one. one. How full will that get of painted models? Painted stuff, uh, not so fast. So. Like, no, but I mean, like, right now, how many yeah. painted models do you own right now? Like, do, how much do you actually have painted? I have an okay amount. I would say like half the half the big cabinet can easily get filled with painted models. Um, how many of them were painted in the last stuff. five years? A bunch of them. Like what? Dystopian. He does have tiny boats. I do have tiny boats, but they're not fully painted. They're like half painted. No, well, I have like three <laughs> boats that aren't uh, fully painted for so, the Ottomans. An Ottoman fleet. I have an Ottoman fleet. The, are the Prussians all done? No. They are base coated, I believe, for the most part. So, no. <laughs> well, one fleet? Come on, what do you want? I don't know. Like, something other than a fleet of dystopian wars that's been painted? <laughs> yeah, okay, all right, I'll get on that. So I gotta set up the basement, and then I need a new painting palette and such, so... 
They're called comic book covers. No, I don't like those anymore. <laughs> You're too cool for those. My, my. What do you? Are you a wet palette guy? Yeah, baby, wet palette. Ugh, those you like? You like mold in your paint? I do. Yeah, I hate <laughs> those things. It adds. It adds the taste when I lick my brushes. Uh, I just go for the Tamiya clears every once in a while just to feel like I'm an alcoholic for Russia. <laughs> <laughs> one for you, one for me. <laughs> fair enough. Fair enough. Uh, I did nothing for myself this week. Painted up some more circle for Josh. That's circle. Okay. Yeah. So that was sweet. Nice. Fair nice. enough. Yeah. Uh, okay. So that's our really eventful painting. I'm sure Mike has done a whole lot of work on stuff to put us all to shame. Uh, but he's not here right now, so he can't. <laughs> um, and, and Steve, I don't think, has either. Steve painted a bunch of Talos for that unit for Las Vegas Open that he's no longer using. Oh! He is like corpse thief claw or whatever. With the unit of like five Talos. He painted all five Talos and is not using them. Which army did he take to the LVO? I oh, think there. he took kind of a hybrid of some of his old lists, like a lot of the Wraiths, the Wraith Guard, the Wraith Lords, the Wraith Seer, the Wraith Knights. If it has Wraith in it, he probably took it. I hope he runs into a lot of Space Wolf players. That would be cool. Yes, I think so. If he runs into Grav Guns, he'll have a bad time. And the Hellfrost could be fun too. Oh, you rolled a six, you're dead. <laughs> yeah, as long as Tom's not rolling dice for them, that probably won't happen. Oh, that's true. Strength test on strength 10? I got this. Oh, no, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> and I'm dead. Never mind. This is why I play Malifaux. <laughs> <laughs> uh, okay, so, Dan, what uh, what's causing you to tell someone to shut up and take your money? Well, uh, for those who follow the Horus Heresy type stuff, uh, Forge World had their Horus Heresy Weekender mm -hmm. recently, and they revealed... A lot of the stuff coming up from book five, which is Tempest, so um, the Kalth campaign. And uh, they unveiled, yeah, a lot of the cool new stuff for, some new stuff for the word bearers, like the, the uh, possessed Contemptor Dreadnought special character. Okay. Which looks pretty badass. He's kind of like half coming to life and is all mutated and stuff like that. And very cool. There's also, um, yeah, like there's a new fighter, there's like new super heavies. Bunch of new solar auxilia guardsmen type things. Some Mecha new mechanicum. New mechanicum, yeah. Like, there's all kinds of crazy crap for that. Um, and an Iron Warriors character. Yeah, that's event only. That's event only. That doesn't happen in Canada. <laughs> so, John, we may have a special mission for you <laughs> when you go to Adepticon. Yeah, no kidding. So, John, if you're listening, and we know you are because you're like one of our three listeners, <laughs> I will give you money to get me that model. We'll have to be in touch on that one. We'll, we'll think of something, I'm sure. But, uh, yeah, there's all kinds of cool new stuff for Horus Heresy coming out. Probably the one I'm most excited about from the Forge World side of things is the Xiphon Space Marine Flyer. Oh, I was going to That looks like the Viper from Battlestar Galactica with quad las cannons. It is so cool looking. Looks yep. like it might actually be able to fly, which is always a bonus. <laughs> it's not a box. But you mean the other Space Marine Flyers are not something that you could possibly ever fathom flying through anything ever? Atmosphere. It's cool. Flying, <laughs> if you strap enough jet engines to a brick, it'll totally fly. <laughs> yeah, sure. <laughs> but That's uh, aerodynamics. In space, yeah, for sure. But yeah, like, aerodynamics atmosphere? in space are kind of not much of a thing. No. But, uh, but no, so I think the Xiphon looks really cool. Um, yeah, that's probably the most urgent. They're, they're supposedly coming out with some Raven Guard stuff, like some shoulder pads, which I might pick up a couple of I as was, well. I was going to say, like, I hope... Hopefully you saw those. Yeah, I got. Um, I still haven't built or painted the Vanguard Veteran Assault Marines for my um, Raven Guard yet, so I'll probably be magnetizing those guys to have like the Lightning Claw, like the um, basically the 30k unit of the old Shrike Swing. I okay. can't remember what they're called, but um, yeah, they have they have rules in the Heresy, and they're all Lightning Claws and jump packs, and they're pretty cool. So 
probably have to get some shoulder pads and all that good stuff. But there's also a few Horse Heresy books coming out. Black Library came out with the non-limited edition version of Talar and Executioner, which is the only uh, limited edition of thing that I don't have. Okay. So I can finally get caught up on that one. And uh, Blades of the Traitor is another like novella-sized uh, collection of short stories. They're both coming out. They're both like 20 25 bucks. so should be a good, uh, reasonably affordable way to get caught up on the series. I'm looking forward to those. I'm just going to borrow them from you. That's not happening. <laughs> <laughs> Dan's particular with his books. If you borrow them, you kind of have to wear surgical gloves. and I can do that. Well, I, I people borrowing the books is largely a hypothetical you know, situation because it just doesn't happen. So. Yeah, fair enough. They're, so the protocols are kind of not in place for that yet. That's true. He has to write them up and draft them and then get them notarized. He's a bureaucrat. He'll get back to you. Give <laughs> <laughs> it six to eight years. <laughs> uh, what about you, Ward? Uh, Whoever you are. Yeah, who, who other guy, the short one. What were you going to call me? Was it a combination of like Mike and Ward? No, it was going to be Dan. I, uh, I, Dan again? I almost said Dan. Dan. Dan Apparently he was interesting. I wanted to hear more <laughs> about this game that I'll never play. Well, I was... Oh, wait. Facepalm. Okay, that's... That's, that's later. Else. That's yes. later. I've Don't got, get ahead of yourself. I've got something for that, so I won't mention that right now. So, uh, Shut Up and Take My Money. Right now is uh, Matt's... Gaming Matt's is uh, Shut Up and Take My Money. I have spent a good portion of money on brand new battle mats. Uh, which brand are you looking at? Both. Uh, two. <laughs> All of the above. Um, I'm picking up a bunch of fat mats, actually. The frontline gaming? Yeah. Yep. Um, so that is going to cover, hopefully, my infinity boards and um, war machine boards mm-hmm. for cool. future events, uh, as well as I'm picking up a bunch of 4x6s for Warhammer and Warhammer 40k. So that's going to be for that. And then, it's a good thing your wife doesn't listen to the podcast. Oh, my gosh. If she only knew. If she knew, she would be <laughs> in trouble. <laughs> yeah, I got a message from Brian today like or yesterday. He's like, oh, yeah, the mats will be in like tomorrow. So this is how much you owe. And I'm like, ah, oh, son of a bitch. How much was it? Uh, well, just for the... So none of the 6x4 mats, None right? of the 6x4. Only the 4x4s came in the first wave, and that is over $1,000. Yeah, because my one, <laughs> my one, one map was like seventy bucks. Yeah, oh. I feel a little bit better about my life choices. <laughs> yeah, mm-hmm. me too. <laughs> so, so if people are like, "Oh, well, onslaught costs so much," I'm like, "Well, the prices aren't changing, but I did buy a lot of mats." So, yeah, you're not exactly making out like a bandit here. This any money you make and then some is going directly it, it into goes, reinvesting for more scenery, more mats. It, it goes right back in, right? So. And if you want to have, like, 80 people playing games in your new basement, you can totally, totally make that happen, right? Totally legit. Because that would totally fit. (laughs) Yeah. Take over the garage, maybe. That sort of thing, so... Speaking of garages, <laughs> yeah. I think the roommate just got here. It, it, Garage door, I can hear opening. It, it, it frightened Tom there a little bit. So. <laughs> well, I didn't, I didn't know we were attached. I didn't know there was a garage. Um, and then <laughs> I'm also, because we were talking about Malifaux... Um, Fat mats only have one style of the 3x3s. So you're getting a bunch of the deep cuts? I am going to order some. Oh, those ones are so nice. nice. So if you are looking for some deep cut, Tom, we'll talk to them. And we will talk. They They've got some really yeah. cool new ones, too. Like They have um, like lava fields looking that, ones. I think, I think we should get one of those eventually for somebody's birthday. Or you should order one at least, right, for some salamanders. 
So, that could be cool. Yeah, that could be pretty neat, I think. In a 4x6? I think so. I, and Deep Cut as well, they're also very open. Like, on their website, they say, like, if you want anything different or custom or anything like that, they can do it too. Because it's all just printing on vinyl, right? They yeah, don't have absolutely. to, like, get a million of these shipped from China at once. They do it themselves. And Deep Cut, if you're listening, we will totally talk more positively about you on the podcast if you give us some free mats. Is that even possible? I, <laughs> I don't think we've had anything bad to say about Deep Cut. Yeah. I, I've even been messaged from, like, certain people that are like, oh, have, have you used Deep Cut Studios? I'm like, oh, yeah, absolutely. Have I used Deep Cut Studios? Have I ever. So, but, okay. so I'm going to order a bunch of 3x3s three and, again, put that in, like, another drafting tube and then I can quarter cart um Malifaux mats around and then also the space mats so awesome. beautiful that's yeah. fantastic so that's mats mats are getting my money okay uh on the topic of Malifaux they have finally did you say what you're buying is there anything yeah this is that's, right now this is right now okay. this is happening you, you just cut them off you totally just stopped me from it sounded like you were going on to a different topic yeah what well, I'm gonna buy <laughs> okay um no they finally released the renders of Brewmaster so Hopefully this means that I get to give them the money that I wanted to give them a year and a half ago within the next <laughs> month or two. And I saw the pictures you were showing me earlier. They actually look pretty cool. Yeah, the detail. I had no idea what to expect. And yeah, they're like the whole, you were saying like, it's kind of like Legend of Drunken Master Kung Fu Gremlin mashup. Yeah, well, because the, <laughs> the, the coolest game mechanic I've ever encountered in my life is the, the Moon Shinobi. They're the Drunken Ninjas. Which is and, a badass name. Yes, the pun is amazing. And what they do is normally when you're f dealing with your flips in Malifaux, the better you're doing uh, on your initial difference between your score and your opponent. So if you have a greater differential, you'll have a better flip for the damage. Mm -hmm. With them, it's actually the exact opposite. So the worse your differential is when you're attacking, oh, so you want to have the exact same result as your opponent. And that will give you the positive flip for damage. Huh. And whereas normally, if you have the exact same for the attacker and the defender, you're getting a double negative to the attack, the damage flip. So everything is reversed because they're a bunch of fucking drunken idiots. We, that's really mm, confusing and awesome. Yes. I don't know if I would play them because I would hurt my brain. Oh, dude. It's <laughs> going to be so much fun. And the henchman is called Fingers, which is just kind of sweet. Interesting. Wow. <laughs> I won't even go there. Fortunately, it's a noun, not a verb, so everything's okay. <laughs> uh, yeah. Anyways, on the topic of face palms, uh, Spartan Games just announced this week that they are bedfellows with the people that make Halo. And this is pretty cool, the notion of there being a Halo miniature game for people that give a fuck about Halo. And Spartan Games having the Spartan helmet for their logo on some of the news releases was pretty clever. Yeah, absolutely. I'll definitely give them that. It's very fitting that that company got the rights to Halo. Right? Yeah, so. absolutely. And at first I thought it was kind of weird because Spartan's known for their fleet games and not necessarily for anything more of a skirmish-based uh, 30 or 28 mil. They've only got one game like that and no one plays it. And <laughs> so I was kind of curious if they were going to use this as their opportunity to really push into that market have a 28 mil Master Chief, whatever the fucking aliens are called. And I think that's a game that gamers would really want to play. Yeah, there's probably a lot of people that would buy those miniatures in 28 mil for sure. Get a couple of Warthogs and insert names of other vehicles here. The yeah. Wraith is one of them. The Wraith, I've, I've Wraith, played all the Halos. Wraith is the big purple flying thing, I'm pretty sure. Yeah, or whatever. Yeah. Absolutely. Some, some sort of alien craft. I and, don't so, know. and so this would do really well for the company. 
Um, unfortunately, that's not what they did. They're making a fucking fleet game. It's a good thing that they're breaking entirely new ground doing a fleet game, because they don't have any competing products in that segment. No. <laughs> None no. at all. None. I well, as I was saying before, I think that they should do like a pin and like have the pinhead be like Master Chief, and he can just float around. Okay, now I'm kind of picturing shapes. Pinhead Master Chief, and that's kind of amazing. <laughs> like Hellraiser. Like Hellraiser. <laughs> that's a little different. That'd be interesting. Yeah, for sure. sure. There's some crossover potential there. I mean, there there is concern, just like when Games Workshop got the rights to like Lord of the Rings, right? It rides a bubble for only so long. And with them not really developing the Halo universe, when is this game going to peter out, right? Well, sorry, them, yeah, them, the Spartan Games is not developing the Halo universe, but there is, there are the four or five games, and there is the Halo 5 coming out, supposedly, so there's a decent-ish amount of backstory, I suppose. But, but is it more than Lord of the Rings? I don't know. Apparently, you can milk a like three hundred page book for like three whole movies. So you can. I enjoyed it thoroughly. <laughs> Fuck you, man. It was so great. many singing midgets. <laughs> hey, I know nothing about the Hobbit. I did not. There was watch as them. many singing midgets in the Hobbit trilogy as there was in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. That's fair. Which is still too many. I'm. <laughs> my biggest thing is like the concern about like how long the interest will last in this system, right? Yeah, for so. me, like, I don't know, because I'm not a huge Halo expert, I don't know, are there more than the two main factions? I like, think there's, is it, I don't, I, I've played a little bit. Isn't yeah. there space soldiers and aliens? Isn't that the game? I, think, I don't know what the ending's, uh, Covenant, is that a thing? Are I, they think, I think there's three <laughs> uh, main factions, there's the okay. humans, the Flood, and the Covenant. So Steve could actually be contributing to this topic yeah, right Steve, now. Yeah, Steve, where are you? Yeah. Where are you, bro? Calling Steve. And then, and then even in the humans, there's two different factions, right? There's your, like, Imperial Guard, and then your Spartans, which are, like, your Space Marines. So are they the same faction, or just different, like, levels of the Different same levels faction? within the same So that's not really too different. I don't know. Either way, it's in a fleet game. I don't know. There, I know there were some levels, like, in Halo 4. There's one where you have a little fighter plane, and you, like, fly around. But I don't know. It, is, it does seem to be quite weird to have a fleet game for Halo. Because the it's vast majority of the game, game is ground-based, like, shooter and vehicle combat. So as like a 40k skirmish analog, it would have been perfect. Or even something infinity scale, you know, where you're playing with five or six models yeah. against five to ten models, depending. Uh, maybe throw in one of the warthogs for giggles. Uh, the, there, in the article, there was talk about them doing a ground-based game. But again, since they don't have that experience right now, I think they went for the, the space game. I think so. you can already see that um, their release schedule, as they're developing more and more games simultaneously... There's a lot of folks. Worse. Yeah, it's similar to like your Malifaux and the Gremlins that never come out. Like there are some people that are like, okay, it's been a long ass time. Where's my fleet? Where's my faction? So we're just kind of hoping, I think, that they have the resources to sustain all these games simultaneously. It is definitely a challenge. I mean, you're coming out with new games. You're pulling a lot of time away from the development of the other games. And when it's a license as well, it's a lot more complicated to process. Depends like with, on their agreement. Yeah, it's like it's like the AVP thing, right? Like where um, Protoss, they have to get everything, all the packaging, all the rules, all the fluff. Everything has to go through this um, approval process, and it everything adds time. Like, it is a lot more, a lot more hoops to jump through. And you look at the company like Games Workshop when they did Lord of the Rings; they had to endorse it as a full fledged game for yeah, ten years. Yeah, it wasn't it wasn't a specialist game; it was a core game for ten years. Yeah. 
So it's a big commitment. The movies were only really relevant for four. Because you had, like, from when the first one came out to the third one came out. Yeah, it's kind of like like lead up to the first one, a couple years to the third, and then a little bit afterwards. Yeah. Yeah. Um, Especially when they all finally came out on DVD, you had that. And then nothing. There was, like, four guys that bought one of every model that ever came out because they just loved Lord of the Rings. And that was about it. Yeah, supposedly they made some good money on that, but... It was it was a bubble. <laughs> it was a bubble, and the bubble burst. So yeah. So I just hope they're not getting going to get burned by a really brutal contract just to get the rights to Halo, because they're not as big of a company as Games Workshop. This could potentially break them. Yeah, it's one of those things where it could make them a sick amount of money if they can really expand their demographic and get a lot of the video gamers interested in like the tabletop hobby for the first time. But that is it's definitely a tough sell, and when you don't have physical stores like GW does, getting a whole new segment to people to see it for the first time. It's definitely a challenge. For me, a lot of it will be interesting to see how they promote it. Like, are they going to have a lot of, like, uh, the print or online advertising? Are they going to do anything as crazy? Like, if you notice, like, the Super Bowl, like, that stupid iPad game with Kate Upton in the commercials, like, some new demographics are definitely getting a little bit more mainstream. Like, I don't know if they'll go so far as to try and get any... TV or anything like that, but it, uh, for me, it'll be interesting to see how they promote it, like how they're going to try and expand the gamer base. Yeah, and obviously they can't go anything Super Bowl level, but they have Hell to no. put their names out there somehow. <laughs> yeah, um, even if they're just doing some blasts on Facebook. I kind of, I kind of do want to see like Kate so, Upton with a Master Chief helmet, though. That'd be pretty cool. <laughs> I was just thinking of like one of one of the uh, designers at like their kids' high school football game and. <laughs> <laughs> Promoting it that way. Who knows? Well, they're a know. British company, so definitely. Well, football. Yeah. Football. Hey, so. just same word, different meaning. Yep. Okay. <laughs> uh, I, I do have one other facepalm, though. Oh, you've got another facepalm? I do have one other one. It's just because I need to vent a little bit. So yeah. you've got nothing else to say about Hilarious, uh, Halo, Spartan? I, I think I gave my two cents, so. Okay. But, but the facepalm that I have is just like... Dan was talking about all the new Horus Heresy stuff that was coming out, and I was I was pretty excited for the. the I know Weekender. where this is going. Yeah, I was excited for the Weekender, but for me, it came down to the Ultramarines and two things that they really need: fuck and all. Like we don't need anything <laughs> else for the Ultramarines. Like we need to get more specialized into the things. That's the big thing. That's the big draw for Forge World. I think like. Hey, Rhino Doors, what, what kind of cool designs can we come up with? Something that's different, not an ultramarine, vanilla, run-of-the-mill everything. It's just, when when I saw some of the release stuff, I'm just like, I know what the Primarch is, I'm super excited, it's going to be Doran, Forge World's going to take all my money, screw the mats, I'm not going to buy any more, I need Forge World, and then Reboot comes out, and I'm like, fuck off. That this, was their rebuttal. This I'm like, this is bullshit. <laughs> well, not only is he not Dorn, he's also not Korax, so I'm not particularly thrilled about that release either. Or Perturabo. Like, fuck you, Forge. Yeah, where's Pro Turbo? <laughs> um, you know, I kind of feel the same way, because every time Games Workshop, and not Forge World, but Games Workshop releases anything to do with Chaos Space Marines, it's either fucking Corn Berserkers or Black Legion. <laughs> or a brand new Legion that no one's ever heard of or given a fuck about. They have a lot of Nurgle stuff. Uh, now that sure. you're totally sick of Nurgle. Yeah. <laughs> cha. Oh, I didn't even realize. That. <laughs> that was bad. You know but. who's not sick of Nurgle? Mike. Well, Mike is sick with Nurgle. <laughs> They're bits. It's a subtle difference. 
Yeah. Okay, so before we uh, kind of move past this into the meat and potatoes of this podcast, I'm going to take this opportunity to talk about some of the merch that we've been getting made. So we've got these super sweet jerseys that we're all wearing right now that you guys can't see, but you can if you look at the pictures of how awesome they are. If we get a better microphone, you'll be able to hear them. <laughs> yeah. Uh, maybe that showed up a little bit. Probably uh, not. There's there's a filter on the microphone, so it probably yeah did not pick that up at all. Okay. Uh, and there's also the <laughs> dice the dice that we did up as a little bit of promo and a few other things. Now, one of the issues we've got right now is that the Canadian dollar is really shitty. So if we're ordering things like Chessex dice, our cost is almost thirty percent more. So we're either transferring that immediately onto you guys, or we just wait for a little bit and see where the where the dollar ends up in a month or two. And what's probably going to end up happening is that just means our dice orders will be delayed by a month or two until we kind of see where the dollar settles down a little bit. Yeah, and there's there's beginning to be a couple of good days in a row for the markets and everything. So assuming that continues, we might get a bit of a rebound in the dollar and we can you know pull the trigger on these sooner rather than later. So we will definitely keep you guys posted. Yeah, absolutely. And as far as jerseys go, we've kind of got a we did these as like more prototypes, and we just kind of have to look into exactly what it would entail for us to order a larger uh, number of them and what it would cost to get uh, jerseys to you guys because they weren't cheap no <laughs> like they are they are not a cheap thing at all it would have been a lot cheaper to just you know go buy like go to the store and buy like an nhl jersey or something it would have been a lot cheaper yeah even crested and numbered and all the rest of it it still would have been cheaper but they're wow. awesome that's true it actually is about is a lot less to buy them from Rexall Place, fully crested, high quality oiler jerseys, than it was for us to buy these ones. The, the, so. pro- the problem, though, is that it's got an oiler crest on it. Yeah. <laughs> they should really be, like, giving those things away. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, let's leave that one entirely alone. So the moral of the story is we'll keep you guys posted when it comes to any of the merch that we're going to be bringing out. And we've got some ideas for a few more neat things that we'll be bring them to you guys as soon as possible, and we thank you for your patience. And I will be living inside Photoshop for the next several months. Perfect. Thank you, man. (laughs) Now a lot of the work's already done. Don't worry about it. (laughs) (laughs) Okay, perfect. So in this week's Coach's Corner, because we haven't really had a dedicated Coach's Corner in a while, uh, where we have more of uh, this neat and tidy little topic, we're going to be talking about building scenarios and kind of different approaches to building scenarios and some of the pitfalls that you might find yourself getting into if you've never tried to make scenarios before and you're trying to put them out there, especially for a tournament play, um, where guys are actually getting points out of the scenarios that you're giving them. So I think the single biggest thing to mention when it comes to writing scenarios is playtest them. Yeah, that is probably rule one through four, at least, yeah. on the, uh, the how-to guide for writing scenarios. Because a lot of things sound really good on paper, and then you, you know, play the game for the first time, you're like, oh, there's a rule technicality I didn't realize, the game's over on the top of turn one. And not only playtest, but playtest multiple times, and playtest play multiple times for every revision of the scenario. You want to have it nice and tight. Now, this is particularly uh, a big point for anything you're using in tournaments. If you're writing up a scenario for giggles in your own home, do whatever the hell you want, it doesn't really matter, as long as... You're having fun playing the game. That's the purpose there. But as soon as people's scores in a tournament are involved, you've got to try and make it as balanced as you can for as many different factions or list builds as possible. Yeah, and that, that's a really good point as well. Um, with a lot of these games, with just such wildly differing play styles from one army to the next, like just you playing, you know, playtesting a scenario with your army versus your main opponent a couple of times, it might not necessarily give you that full indication. Like, 
in a perfect world, you should be playing with multiple different factions with very different list styles. Like, oh, is it a land grab? Well, okay, try it with a slow army versus a fast army, that sort of a thing. Some armies in a lot of game systems have um, a lot of deployment shenanigans, like whether it's have, starting with more models on the table, starting further up the board. There's, there's definitely a lot of wrinkles that are easy to overlook, and you definitely don't want to discover a lot of these things for the first time during a tournament. Because there would be some fairly unimpressed uh, customers, I believe. Yeah, absolutely. Um, before we get into some of the more meat and potatoes of it, Ward, do you have any just kind of general uh, things to mention about writing scenarios? The biggest thing that uh, Dan brought up, too, is, is the multiple armies. So the more armies that you can play test it with, the better. Because writing a scenario, it, it might work with 90% of the, the forces, but that one that one army might really throw it off and skew it, right? So, or in the middle of the event, you have to be ready to think on your toes if something that didn't come up during your playtesting, you get a question about it, and you're like, oh, well, does this count as this? And you're like, ah, yes or no, right? So sometimes okay. you got to make that executive decision like last minute and then you know for the future to tweak the scenario or scrap it altogether. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> so the two main approaches for when you're starting to write a scenario is probably taking a scenario that already exists and modifying it to be some kind of a neat or unique twist on it that you think is entertaining or starting from scratch. I think we should start with the the simpler one which is going to be taking a book scenario and modifying it. Now, one of the perfect examples in my mind of this is when 8th edition Fantasy came out, there were two scenarios, uh, Blood and Glory and the Watchtower, that as soon as one of the win conditions happened... The game is over. Game is over, you win, no questions asked, massacre for you. Go team. A lot of tournament organizers realized this was a very bad idea because you couldn't get any kind of the gradation of scores with your major, minor... Massacres, losses, kind of victories. And there's also the hilarious point of there are actually some armies for Blood and Glory that can auto lose the second the game starts. Which you don't is have on the player. <laughs> I'm true. sorry. That's that is not the scenario. That is the player. If you know that's possibly something you're gonna play, bring more than a general and one stick. <laughs> <laughs> but I just love the fact that that is an entirely legal army that just auto loses in that scenario. Yeah. Um, it amuses me greatly. Yeah, it's on them. <laughs> it's really good if you want to be able to like just go take an extra two and a half hour break in the middle of a tournament and like grab a beer. Yeah. So anyway, I'm just gonna wander down the street, find a pub, see yeah. you guys in three hours. Yeah. What a lot of tournaments ended up doing with those scenarios is they made it so that if you had that win condition, it gave you almost an insurmountable points shift in your favor. But if your opponent still tables you, there's a good chance that they're squeaking out a draw, if not a minor victory over you. But to be fair, if you're the one that is not getting the win condition, the likelihood of you tabling your opponent's also pretty low, so it kind of balances itself out. Yeah. But it leaves it on the table. It gives you that option, and it doesn't automatically end the game, potentially on turn one or two. Uh, especially, not necessarily quite as janky as just deploying and losing, but a errant purple sun could take... A oh, lot of stuff yeah. off the board. Just walk right through an army, right? So, Or Skaven can be dicks and knock down the Watchtower. That's that's a thing. Yeah, I really want that to change. <laughs> yeah, I really hope they revisit their spell deck, because that's kind of a dick move. <laughs> yeah. I'll just kill the objective. It's cool. No big deal. <laughs> It'll be a draw. So, Ward, what are some kinds of modifications that you've done to rulebook scenarios over the years for some of your tournaments? Um, I find the rulebook scenarios, like, I... I originally, when I first started doing tournaments, I wrote up my own scenarios. 
But again, like, it was never 100% like every single army it worked for. I had to answer a lot of questions and such. I don't know what you're doing. You're um, facing me instead of the microphone, so I, I'm making well, it like a little hand face for you to look at instead of me. And I'll put it on the other side of the microphone so that you'll actually look at the fucking microphone when you talk. That's really complicated. You're an asshole. If you're, trying, uh, you're trying to mime what you're doing to explain it. Did not make sense. No, so, not, not at all. <laughs> of course it um, didn't. Yeah. But, so anyway, to go back to the meat and potatoes of this, um, <laughs> I was going to make fun of him later if you didn't. Don't worry. So okay, I got right. that out of the way. Thank you. Oh my goodness. <laughs> what is that? I don't even know what that is. Um, so, so a little face like, on your hand could come in handy later. <laughs> <laughs> no, Dan. <laughs> Sorry, not to completely derail the topic. This guy's not looking for any jobs. <laughs> <laughs> He's already employed. Yes, it is your left hand, so it'd be completely useless. I'm pretty ambidextrous. <laughs> I don't know if I need to know that. Let's, let's get back on topic. Because uh, of, of bass playing. Sure. <laughs> That's what we'll go with. Um, anyway, where was I? Uh, yeah, so writing scenarios originally, um, it was it was a little bit difficult, yeah, because there, there'd be some, like, rules or some units that would slip through the cracks, right? Like, a single unit of, like, the Necrons, and you're just like, oh, crap, like, I, that wasn't taken into consideration, this is how that would work then, that sort of thing. Um, lately, what I've been doing is just using either rulebook scenarios or with small tweaks. Um, so for Onslaught, what I typically do is I'll, I'll do rulebook scenarios... And then I'll typically add in a layer of secondary objectives. So if you do this objective, you get extra victory points or, or what have you um, for accomplishing. And you can only choose one per game. And if you choose one that the opponent doesn't have, so sorry, too bad. You should have known better, been a better general and picked a better. So like general. what? Like give us a couple examples. Uh, let's say, because Steve's not here, yeah. uh, let's talk about 40k. Okay. Uh, so for the 40k, well, what, what's some possible examples of secondary objectives that you would have? So one of the ones that I did have uh, was Big Guns Never Tire. So you had to destroy all their heavy support choices, and you got like an extra two victory points if you were able to do that. Should somebody not take any heavy support options, which I think hardly anybody ever does Sounds fairly anymore. rare. Unless you're taking some of those weird, like, oh, my army is just a bunch of formations and minimum troop. Yay. Yeah. So with that one, if you chose the option and they didn't have any heavy support... You didn't get the points. You wasted that card should you come into fighting an Imperial Guard player like later on, and you have the stuff that you need to kill it. So were they given their opponent before they chose the secondary objective? Yes. So you could you could ideally see what they would have and then choose your objective card. So, so. if someone chose to kill heavies and they were playing against someone without any heavies, it's all on them. It's not on the actual object the scenario at that point. They chose poorly. Okay, so when you're nice, doing that... Uh, last Crusade reference. Thank you. I, thank I appreciate you. that. <laughs> so when you're doing this, do you typically do as many secondaries as rounds, or do you have a couple extras? They'll be so extras. So that there's, you're not going to totally get humped if you choose the other three, and in, the, in game four, this is all you have left. To repeat myself, there are extras. So, okay. So typically, like... Uh, How many? A tournament is four rounds, and there's usually half a dozen cards. So there's, like, two extras... That you don't have to choose uh, if you don't want, or okay. should it not be feasible, right? So, I mean, like, there's there's usually one give me. It's like, okay, I'm going to play this game with 150 points 
less than my normal like list. So if you're playing in an eighteen fifty tournament, you're playing a list against a guy at seventeen points, and they get to take their full at seventeen points, seventeen hundred <laughs> points. And yeah, I, I do remember that actually. That was that was a really interesting decision to try and make. Where you're like, yeah, do I? Do I literally fight with one arm tied behind my back? Like, is there one unit that isn't really going to do any good for me in this game as it is? Yeah, and I mean, at that point, then it's like, well, that's going to deny them points, essentially, potentially, so... So, for that specific one, did you ever try it where you play your 150 points down, and it's worth one point to do it, and two points if you win? I think you only get the points if you win, correct? You would only get the points if you win. That's neat. Yeah, yeah so. so it's it's definitely a gamble there. Whereas some of the other ones, um, and that's actually an interesting point too, um, they're not all worth the same, at least in some of those previous incarnations of your tournament. They are not. Some of the easier to get ones might have been like, oh, like kill the enemy's HQ. That might have been worth, what, like one or two points? Mm-hmm. Whereas the bonus card for table your opponent was, I think, worth like three or four. Yeah, so that, I mean, and these these bonus points only really factored into like the best generalship score. So at that point, you got like a better spread potentially between like generals um, because if you're only going off of like massacres and such, depending on the scenario, is sometimes like games are over really quick and then you know which guys are going to be partnered up. But when the secondary objectives are tossed in there, you're like, well, there's a few little nuances here. I, I squeaked in an extra victory point here over top of you, and I know that we were kind of evenly matched. It adds so, a little bit more nuance to the tiebreakers, for sure. It does. It's exciting. Uh, with 40k currently, with their like Warlord, First Blood, and, and such scenarios, uh, I'll do slight tweaks to those. So on a specific scenario, it's like, oh, Warlord is actually worth double if you are the first person to get Warlord. So you can jump up a little bit higher, That's potentially, cool. in your points. That's pretty sweet. Um, are there any other tweaks that we could do to rulebook scenarios to make them a little bit more entertaining, exciting, or challenging to players. Um, one of the really interesting ones that gets a lot of um, a lot of questions and comments from players is, um, and there's a little bit of it in current 40k, but um, some of the game systems, they only tally up the victory points for objectives at the end of the game, whereas some of the game systems you can score every round. Yeah. So I think mixing up those types of scenarios a little bit into systems that don't normally have those mechanics is uh, is definitely a pretty cool one, and it's it's difficult to do for 40k. It is. I've I've tried to implement some like war machine ideas, like the control points and and that sort of thing into 40k scenarios, and I mean, it, with mixed results. It's mixed results, like right, right? You got to play test it more. I mean, what doesn't work one year, depending on the edition, might work the following year or what have you. Right? Yeah, some, if scoring on turn one can be really hilarious if you have like a drop pod army. I claim all the objectives. I win. Yeah, and that's <laughs> something worth really keeping in mind, especially for games workshop games, is that they're constantly revamping their codices and, and uh, army books, and the additions have been changing so frequently in the last uh, decade or so that sometimes scenarios that work wonderfully one year uh, or even a few months later, there could be a new a new release that just totally fucks them over. So you need to be really cognizant when you are writing your scenarios and you are doing the rulebook modification ones, especially that it still works with the current releases. The the other thing uh, with those scenarios that can like wrap up in like turn two, if you if you get all the control points uh, compared to. Uh, ones that you tally all your points at the end of the event, um, you have to take into consideration too, are you able to do your calculations and, and put new tables out if everybody goes to their max time limit? 
So as like a new organizer, you might want to look at uh, scenarios that could be wrapping up a little bit quicker to kind of help you with your calculations and that sort of thing too. So you can play with your scenarios that way. Yeah, it also really helps for gamer fatigue, I find. If you've got scenarios that are geared towards being achievable in maybe half of or uh, 75% of the allotted game time. Yeah. So that it's entirely possible that the game could be done in an hour instead of two or an hour and a half instead of two. And that way you're not having people just playing two hours, they have a five-minute break while you're tallying, then another two hours. Uh, and so it's a lot... I mean, maybe it's because I play on a War Machine where you do have the option of games being won a lot more quickly. Yeah. Where caster kills. That caster sort of kills. Thing. Even on scenario, you can win by turn three. If yeah, dominate some control zones, get the extra points. It, uh, it's a lot easier on the players if the scenarios are attainable earlier. That, that sort of dynamic, too, is kind of helpful when you just want to like meet and greet like other gamers too right if you're if you yep. got a bunch of guys that are done their games they're gonna sit around and talk about those games usually and and then you can meet new new players and go yeah, from there absolutely it's really hard to socialize with other people when all you're doing is playing games and sprinting to the next game in yeah. between yeah exactly and it's handy that you're all there for the same reason just saying yes <laughs> absolutely so Dan, do you have anything else to mention on rulebook modifications? I think we've definitely covered um, a lot of the elements of it. I think one of the other salient points, too, is one of the nice things about doing a tweak to a rulebook scenario is simply that you don't need to have, like, five pages of special rules for each mission in your player's pack. Yeah. Like, if you're playing if you're playing a 40k again, because it's an easy example, and, yeah, the Warlord is worth two points or three points or something like that, that that's a sentence. Mm-hmm. It is very simple. It's very quick. Um, or if the deployment, you know, deployment zones are slightly different, or some minor little tweak to an existing scenario is very quick and easy to explain. You're not going to have a lot of questions. People aren't going to be completely confused if reading it for the first time. So I think that's definitely a good way to go for most events. And uh, yeah, this seems to be an overall pretty safe, conservative way of doing something a little different without potentially shooting yourself in the foot. Okay, sounds good. So let's move on then to building scenarios more from scratch. And one of the things to really keep in mind when you're doing this is what do you want the scenario to accomplish? And first off, you can talk about the fun versus competitive as a distinction to make. And obviously, if it's fun, do whatever the fuck you want. If it's competitive, you need more balance. And kind of within that, within these branches, the two main archetypes that I've encountered are control point scenarios where they're based more around board control or objective control or a victory point scenario that's based more around killing. And if you're approaching the scenario, you need to make sure that you've got a relatively clear understanding of which one of these two things you're really going towards. Otherwise, you can get lost in an overly convoluted scenario very quickly. And some of those scenarios can be really fun. Like I remember some of the um, old onslaught scenarios where there's like a titan off in the background and you can shoot at it and get victory points and <laughs> it can like shoot the table and shit happens and some of those things are really really fun to play but you can get into that territory of you spend more time trying to figure out what the rules are than playing the game sometimes yeah, yeah. so that's definitely a, a pretty critical thing and it ties into the point you said at the end of uh, the last bit of this topic is whatever you're doing y- your players need to be able to read it and understand it in a very short period of time and if they can't you're probably doing it wrong. Or get smarter players. Uh, I don't know. It's, we've, it's not really up to you, though. Yeah, no, it's, it's really not. 
And because I know with Out of the Basement, there was a good long while where we had a whole bunch of zany scenarios. And for fantasy, one year. Yeah, like those weird messengers and. Yeah. Yeah. And they just get complicated really fast. They're really fun, but they can be very confusing. (laughs) Yeah, I mean, if if you're just doing something with like a local group of guys um, that gets together in games, yeah, the the wild and zany ones are pretty good. Um, I found with with writing my own scenarios, whatever the scenario was, it had to assure mutual destruction for both sides. Because if you just gave it that, um, it was really in the favor of one force or another, the game got sour for the other player pretty quickly. So in the in the case of like the Titan off in the, the background that you could shoot at, um, typically it shot back at the board and would do like a random like scatter roll. So it could affect both either or uh, armies that were involved in that. So And also Tyranids loved that scenario back when they had no real ranged anti-tank. Yeah. It's like, oh, all these bonus points for shooting a Titan off table that I cannot hurt. Yay! Yeah, so again, <laughs> think of all the different armies that will be brought to your tournament. So. Exactly. Yeah. And one of the things, kind of talking about the mutually assured destruction, if you are doing a board control scenario, you still have to keep them relatively central. So one of the things that I was working on for Dystopian Wars is a, uh, a scenario where there's a whole bunch of these scrap tokens all over the board and by salvaging them is how you're getting your control points to then win the game. The first person to get to, I think it was originally five and that's being modified to three control points will be the winner. Uh, and it turns out in playtesting with new dystopian wars with advanced deployment, you could just get this stuff way too quickly and the game was over right away. So you weren't actually encouraging your, the opponents to engage with each other. Whereas now it's going to be modified so that you're only able to salvage on your opponent's side of the board or central. So you have, you have to leave the ones right in front of you alone. So it's forcing you to go forward and engage with your opponent's models, even if you, you're still trying to get the control points. That's interesting. And um, again, to use an example from 40k, because ultimately I don't play much 40k now, but historically that is probably the most tournament stuff I've played over the years. Yeah. Um, some of the least favorite missions for 40k were always the uh, the one like the bases one where there's like there's one objective in the back of my deployment zone, one objective in the back of yours, and then you just have the two armies like standing off and it's just yeah, yeah, those yeah. those missions they were so hard to win. It was like you'd either get a draw, you might like you know yeah, you rush have- somebody on the last turn to deny their objective, but. You had a fire base, they had a fire base, and then it was just like, uh, did yeah. I kill enough that I can make a push, or are we going to get a Yeah, encouraging people to never leave their deployment zone does not necessarily make for a particularly good game. And whereas the Relic actually, as a scenario, does a really good job of, even if you're a faster list and you get to it first and claim it, you're only moving six inches per turn. Per Originally. Phase. Per phase. It's always been per or, phase. Always? But they, they've cleaned it up a little bit in terms of... Um, I think before there was a technicality where if you ran, you would drop the relic. But yeah. like now it's like you can't run, you can't move flat out, you can't turbo boost. Like they've actually cut out some of these other little janky things. Like you used to be able to move in multiple phases yeah, a lot more easily and it's trickier now. But uh, but either way, so even if you're getting there first, it's not like you can just run it off the board this, in the next no, turn. No, the game's not over on top of turn two or anything like that. Not by a long shot. Uh, and it's encouraging. It is starting in this very center of the board, so it's encouraging both players to engage each other. 
and so even if you are making these control points scenarios like the relic or like the salvage one that we're talking about or even like the war machine scenarios that typically have two zones centrally located in the board uh, you still have to actually move towards your opponent to get these points and in doing so you're either having to try and kill your opponent or they're getting the opportunity to try and kill you and that makes for an entertaining game because if you're playing a game other than Malifaux where you don't take any models off the board it's just really boring because most guys like rolling dice and having fun most guys most guys <laughs> I like flipping cards and just dropping ski markers and that makes that I get all the joy in the world out of that <laughs> good to know <laughs> um, one other thing that I was going to say if you're writing scenarios for an event uh, or even just using the rulebook scenarios try to also take into consideration um, your terrain um, so are you doing set terrain oh, on the do boards you, do you have 30 watchtowers <laughs> that that would be another thing, yep. yeah, for sure. So if you're if you're doing set objective markers, um, when you set up your boards originally and you're not letting anybody move stuff on the boards, is there room for that objective to be on the board, right? So if you're setting yes. up a relic in the middle of the board, make sure that that center of the board is clear on all of your maps, so that way it's easy to put down when that scenario comes up to be played. And there's also a really good point too when you are looking at scenarios for tournaments and you're looking at the scenery that you have, you really need to not only allow yourself to be able to place the, scenery, or the objectives physically on the board, but you want to make sure that you have scenery that doesn't interact negatively with the scenario. So you don't want to have... Uh, I did play in one tournament game where uh, it was a game of War Machine, and there was this large tower with walls coming off of one side, and my opponent got that side and was able to hide his caster right behind this tower, almost impossible for me to draw a line of sight, ever. And if I did, he'd be behind cover from either side. And he was, at that point, within range to control any of his war beasts in both of the, object in both of the zones. Oh. So it took assassination <laughs> completely off the table for me and allowed him to still actually contest both zones. So it was definitely some, it was some bad times. <laughs> so you want to make sure that you're not getting any weird negative interactions there. Um, the other thing, too, is, uh, and I don't want to go too much into scenery here, but uh, you need to be able to make, if you do have zones on the board, they need to be accessible. So you don't want to have too much scenery around them that will very dramatically impact, let's say, for War Machine again, uh, if they're surrounded by uh, scenery that you need to have Pathfinder to get through to get into the zones and Pathfinder, not everyone has the same level of access to. So you I, want to be able to make sure it's, things work out well. I'm pretty sure the key to War Machine is to have nothing but buildings and deep water everywhere. Yeah, true. But interestingly enough, with War Machine scenarios, they actually, in their steamroller packs now, have very specific rules as to where scenery can go. Oh, cool. So it, um, different kinds of uh, obstructions cannot be within four inches of zones. Uh, just to prevent people from having these situations actually happen. So you can definitely look into it using other game systems uh, and kind of follow the example of Privateer Press if you're wanting a very competitive, clean scenario. The only... Oh, sorry, word. I was going to say deep water would also, like on your gaming board, really help with your heat sinks. That's true. Oh, my God. <laughs> <laughs> that is true. That would be amazing for dissipating some sweet PPC action. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Tom I'm, has a very pleased look on his face right now. <laughs> At least it's not fucking space clowns. I'm okay with this. <laughs> True. Uh, so how many clowns do fit in that new transport, by the way? 
Fuck, all, I don't know. All of them. There were there, <laughs> there were a couple of the rules leaked to Imgur, but I don't remember the transport capacity. I remember that reading what its weapons do. It's got a haywire blaster and shuriken cannons, and it, one of the shuriken cannons shoots backwards, which cool. is weird. And it's allowed to shoot at a separate target, otherwise it would be terrible. <laughs> oh man! Unless this it's guy, like playing this like gun fa- this gun is facing the other way, but you'll have to shoot everything at one target. If it was like asteroid style, and you could like shoot backwards across the edge of the map and have it warp around to the other side <laughs> of the map, I still, I still want to play a game of X-wing that way because God, that would be fun. Yeah, yeah. Continue the shot coming off the opposite board edge would be so cool. <laughs> I would actually be okay with that. Especially if, it, if you could shoot the asteroids and then they turn into multiple smaller asteroids. Yeah, that'd be so cool. Uh, I'm in. <laughs> I, I, okay, now this is something... We can write a scenario for that. Yeah, this, but this is exactly <laughs> it. So we've talked a little bit about competitive scenarios. And one of the problems sometimes when you get really uh, strict and clean writing these um, very tournament-oriented scenarios, they lose some of the fun that scenarios, especially for a, a lot of us guys that came up through Games Workshop... Scenarios are something that we came up with because they never did. They gave us like a couple shitty scenarios in the books. Yeah, third edition had like ten scenarios in there. Okay, but I'm talking about fantasy. Like I didn't really play a lot of 40k fantasy. Oh, yeah, there was fantasy? nothing. It was really <laughs> bad. They were horrible. You had to write your own, and so you tried to make something fun and entertaining and engaging, which gave some purpose to the game you're playing. Yeah, and there's you can definitely say with 40k there was um, with a lot of the old scenarios like where they used to have like patrol cleanse. Um, you know, recon, all these different objectives, a lot of them like, oh, get into your point, your opponent's deployment zone, clear the most table corridors, that type of stuff. Like, those missions, um, especially the way they were kind of titled and described, they had a bit of a narrative to them. And Whereas fantasy, like, it is so much more difficult because the movement is so much more strict. A lot of these scenarios end up being, like, fairly arbitrary. Yeah. Like, it's just, oh, do this thing and I'll get 50 extra points. Like, so, yeah, there's definitely a balance between finding a bit of narrative as well as just finding something that's simple and easy. And it's definitely kind of a, a kick I'm on right now where I'm having more fun playing games that are that have more of a narrative. And not necessarily to a point where it's it's not balanced anymore, but I would have so many kicks playing a game of X-Wing where if you shot off the board, it would come in at the exact opposite point on the other one with the remainder range that the shot actually has. Yeah, that would be ridiculous. It would be kind of confusing. You might have to bust out like the protractor and stuff once in a while. And the do laser. Some, the so laser much Pythagorean points. theorem. No, man. All you'd have to do is just set up your angle, get the laser, and it would come shoot it up the other side. And it would probably be very beneficial to actually break out the measuring tape in those circumstances because like the range bands... They're, yeah, range band one, two, three. Like, yeah, it's hundred millimeter, two hundred millimeter, three hundred millimeter measuring tape for shooting off one edge of the map and onto the other might come in really freaking handy. Yep, absolutely, <laughs> but no, totally doable. Could be a lot of fun, uh, and that's something worth really keeping in mind is giving yourself a kind of fun game to play every once in a while because not every game that you play has to be really competitive. So, um, I feel like that's most of what I have to say about writing scenarios. And um, just one thing I want to mention quickly while we're still kind of on the subject of X-Wing is, I know I've mentioned it before, but there is um, an app called Mission Control on Fantasy Flight's website. So if you Google that, it is, you can basically use um, like a similar to a forum login. I think it might actually be linked to your forum account. But you can go on there and um, it actually goes kind of like step by step through 
the process of like creating you a mission and then spits you out a nice shiny PDF at the end of it. Oh. And like you actually get like um like a, similar to like the Battle Foam Trade Creator, you get a little flash application where you can like drag around deployment zones, drag around examples of asteroid placement, examples of ships, or if you're playing with like you can make a mission that has like a predetermined army list, for example, like you might say the Imperials have to get a sh- like they have a shuttle with a prisoner on it that's a mandatory part of their list, so you can like drop it down on the map and stuff. It's actually really cool. It's a very advanced and like polished feature. But um, yeah, so that is definitely one worth checking out. Um, and by all means, if you have any good examples of X-wing scenarios, please God share them because the community is definitely curious about those sort of things. And the we'll- official tournaments right now don't use. Any, they're not as part of the um, the tournament pack, but I know there's a lot of guys out there that do look forward to playing something other than the 100 point dogfights, and that, and that's why I try to mix it up. Like we do 125 points, so or have that one one mission out of the three or four at onslaught is generally with double the asteroids. Never tell me the odds. It's called. Oh my god, that's <laughs> awesome! So yeah, you use uh, 12 asteroids. Instead yeah, 12 of six. instead of six. It's actually surprisingly difficult to place 12 asteroids legally. On the table, if you yeah. place them like range band one and a half apart from each other, then those last two or three to go down, there's like literally nowhere for them to go. Yeah. It's, and if you it is a lot of fun. And if you can't place it legally, it's off the board. So you might not end up playing with all twelve, just depending on how. But at you that point, you're still down. super saturated. It is still super saturated. Yeah. The so the one year the one year I played that mission, I played against uh, three fire sprays or something like that. So three big based enemy ships that didn't have a lot of boost or barrel roll to like really manage their movement and the other time it was against a tie swarm so oh having, my god like, so having like i think it was seven or eight ties invader trying to navigate the debris field or you know the 12 asteroids while maintaining some semblance of formation god it was hilarious because i think both times i had like three or four rebel small like elite ships and just like that's cool i got lots of space i can stretch my legs <laughs> it was hilarious now kind of just building on an earlier point that we made this is also a scenario where, ever since Dash Rendar came out, there's a little bit of an imbalance. There's a little bit of imbalance in terms of the movement, but he still has the stipulation where if he ends his movement activation on a rock, he still can't shoot. Yeah. So he but can it's still something fight worth playtesting to yeah. see if it isn't unnecessary. Yeah, because while, he, while he's maneuvering and performing actions, he treats um, asteroids like they're not there. So he can boost and barrel roll and do all kinds of crazy shit in that scenario that no one else would be able to. You're right, that might be a little bit ridiculous, but at the same time... But there's only one of him. Yeah, but, okay, so the last X-Wing event that I went to to watch, because I've never actually played in one, because I've only played like a dozen games, um, it was basically Dash Rendars and Decimators. (laughs) There was was only a couple of Dash Rendars, although one of the lists had Dash Rendar and Edendrill. So <laughs> you had two of yeah. the YT twenty four hundreds, but no, it's yeah. It's, the, the game isn't that one dimensional. There's a shitload of decimators. The rest is a bit of a dog's breakfast. I'm really just joking, but it's yeah. something where back to the cardinal rules one through eight playtest. <laughs> they keep before, getting more and more placements on the list. I like it. <laughs> so before you run that scenario, and get an onslaught. We should actually play a game of X Wing with that scenario with Dash Rendar. Yeah, absolutely, and see how it goes. The, That's a good point. Uh, I'm, Especially like the newest army, if if you can play test the newest army, because that's going to be the big thing, and that's that's the case in point with like Dash and the Decimators, right? Like it's the newest Chinese toy. Yeah, the, the most recent tournament legal edition, Scum and Villainy, may be coming off the boat soon. Yeah, apparently, I saw that post. apparently part of the big restock that went on the boat at the same time 
is now off the boat. Maybe, so. maybe the rest of the stuff is on the back of the boat. Who knows? So. It, it could theoretically be a matter of a couple weeks. Scum and villainy, so. Tom. Scum and villainy. Hey, I'm already sold on this game, you guys. <laughs> like, you just need to come out with the models for your faction. Yeah, exactly. And restock all the other factions, because dear God, there's nothing on the shelves anywhere. Yeah. But and, it sounds like there's a, like a good half dozen of the expansions or more are already unpacked on their way to distribution, so but the more on that, the way. The amount that we buy, do we? are we really waiting for the restock? Well, not me personally, but I know there's, there's people out there that are trying to start the game where they're like, I haven't been able to buy a freaking Millennium Falcon in like eight months. It's a problem. Yeah, yeah. And I so, just mooch your model, so it's all good. Yep, <laughs> it works for you. I want a second one just so I can paint eventually. Yeah, that's <laughs> never going to happen. <laughs> You're funny, um, Ward. Well, now that I saw like Dan's Phantom, I, I totally want to do uh, my own Phantom, but I want to do uh, like a purple lightning. I was thinking about that after the fact. I was like, I probably should have done purple cloak, but it was too late. Because that's that's the I think the artwork I've seen has the purple. Yes, cloak, the the original video game art, I believe it was like a blue. It was similar to like the hyperspace like model blue cloudy kind of thing. But some of the card art, it's a little bit more purple. What I'm going to do is there's a little gem looking hexagon thing in the butt end, like right in the center of the back of the Phantom. Mm-hmm. And I'm going to paint that like a glowing purple Stygium crystal. Um, I don't know if Stygium crystals are purple, but I'm painting it purple. If you, if any listeners know, let us know what color they are. <laughs> yes, people who have actually read the books that these game mechanics are based on. Yes. Absolutely. So on the topic of Ward, because I think we've more or less beaten the, uh, the scenarios here um, relatively heavily. So on the topic of Ward's hilarious inability to paint models, we would like, <laughs> as his co-members of Hobby Night in Canada to give him some help. So, the project that he's working on right now... That allegedly. Allegedly working on right now, that he has yet to really get any traction on, is his Imperial Fists. So we thought that it would be really useful, as people that have painted a fair amount of yellow, to... Well, you've at least painted more yellow models than he has. True. <laughs> <laughs> um, to talk about some of the tips or tricks that Ward could use to paint yellow. Yeah, go ahead. <laughs> Uh, I was hoping you'd be just immediately flying off the handle, so we might have to work a little bit harder to get you get you going here. <laughs> well, yeah, I guess. Uh, so either way, we should probably break it down in the same kind of fashion that we have before. So we can start with a very basic tabletop yellow, um, which I think is maybe the hardest. Yeah, yellow is definitely a tricky color to do well, no matter what type of a technique or effect you're going for. It is... Because you're simply working with colors that don't cover particularly well. They show mistakes really easily. Like, they're just plain finicky. Uh, but I think probably if you're looking at something quick and basic, 99% of the time you're looking at white primer base coat. As much as I absolutely hate to admit it, I do not like white primer, but it is an absolute uphill battle starting with any of the gray or black primer. You're going to get yeah. that weird grayish, brownish, greenish type of a haze to it. It's... Very tricky to get nice, crisp, clean yellow. Especially if you're going for a more vibrant yellow color in the first place. Yeah. Like if As opposed to like the industrial yellow. Yeah. The darker brown yellow. Yeah, yeah kind of yeah. almost more of a, an ochre or stevia. Exactly. Uh, so one of the things uh, that you can do if you want, and this is actually a trick. I think Ward might have shown me this years ago was if you're going to do a yellow and you want to do it over a black primer and you want to do a relatively quick and easy one, paint it with flesh tones and then give it a yellowing 
Why? Like a glaze afterwards. Super bright. Yeah, wow. and with the with the two yellow inks, washes, glazes, whatever you call them from GW, they have, oh god, what are they called? I can't remember what they're called. Because I still have yellow ink. <laughs> <laughs> but they do have, um, I think Lamenter yellow I is the glaze. And is it what, Cassandora yellow is the wash? That's a little bit more orangey, but it's a lot more of a stark shade color, whereas the yellow is really just to bring up um, the intensity a little bit more with the glaze. I think I only have Lamenters. So yeah, there's there's definitely some really good products from GW again. I know P3, uh, their yellow ink, you know, Steve has used it on some of his like weird ink-based OSL effects that he uses for his Eldar. Yeah, and it's, it's an entirely workable yellow ink. Absolutely. So um, basically, what I would do for that is base coat of, I guess it would have been like a tan flesh, covering the, then you'd cover the majority with the dwarf flesh. And the br- the brighter the flesh, to, the better. So yeah. like a, an elf flesh, you would get elf really flesh is all your kind of like half of the surface area into your highlights. Yeah, and you, you can get maybe some, a little bit of bone for edge highlights, kind of thing. Some really bright yellows if you went that way. So I think Jay showed me that one back in the GW. Yeah, it's it's an old trick, but it works really well because those flesh colors, especially if you start uh, with a bit of a darker one, just even for a base coat before you start applying all the lighter ones over top, they cover a lot better than yellow. Absolutely. And, and because they're a little bit more of a natural tone, they just, you can get a much smoother transition than you could with the yellow paints. And one of the other nice things too is being, being an ink or a shade or a glaze or whatever particular materials you're using, they don't go on thick like a paint, so you're not going to have to worry about like streaky brush strokes or anything like that. It will be self-leveling. It'll, sh- you know, shrink as it dries to virtually nothing. You're not obscuring your detail because that's one of the issues when you have some of those colors that don't cover very well. If you're just doing layer after layer after layer, the details of the models disappear. They get gummy and, you know, it just kind of ruins the entire surface of the model. And it's actually quite interesting too, where a lot of the tutorials on like the GW website, they've actually just done like multiple layers of white primer to get like their really, you know, perfect white finish and another gray plastic showing through. And then actually just doing multiple layers of the, um, like the, the shade and the glaze of yellow. And even that with like virtually no real paint involved can look pretty freaking amazing. Yeah. And I almost feel like that is something we should probably talk about at a later date is glaze and ink painting. Because you it's almost can, like watercolors. Yeah, well, basically, because you can actually get a lot of work done if you're particular with how you're using washes and glazes over a white primer. As long as you're not painting like black templars, you're probably fine. Yeah, you, obviously, <laughs> there's limitations here. So something like Imperial Fists or Death Guard would work really well for this, whereas Raven Guard or Iron Warriors not so much. Fair enough. <laughs> but, uh, uh, okay, cool. So that's I think that's probably your very basic. Uh, very basic yellow, white primer with either an airbrush of like your flesh colors or whatever, or just going straight to your glazing. Yep. Would get you a very serviceable, very bright yellow very quickly. Yep. As quickly as you can get with yellow. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so the yellow that I've been doing a lot of is for my uh, mercenaries. And that's definitely more of that cool uh, industrial dull yellow. Yeah. And so originally it started with a Tau Sept ochre and then they got rid of that paint. Uh, fuck Games Workshop. And so I've had to move to... It's a kind of like Avalon Sunset? No, it's really not. It's no. <laughs> actually nothing like that. So I've had to switch to Vallejo... I think it's just Dark Ochre. Uh, and it's as close as I've been able to find. And so you do that, you wash it with uh, your Devlin Mod Analog, which we've talked about, different mixes for that, 
at nauseum on this podcast, so we'll probably leave that there. Uh, reapply your base coat and then start going into Moldy Ochre from P3. And Moldy Ochre is such an amazing color. That is a very nice color, actually. And it covers really well, too. And that's one of the nicest things about it, is that you're not fighting with the color to get coverage. And I do this over a black primer. Okay, I'm failing to remember some of the names of my colors. There's two... Aren't there two of those Moldy Ochre-style colors for P3? Or am I crazy? I think there's just the one. I, th I think there's just the one... I can't remember off the top of my head. No, you're thinking of the old it. foundation paints where oh, there right. used to be Iandin Dark Sun and Tau Sept Ochre right. that were very similar, but Iandin Dark Sun was a much more vibrant color, whereas the Tau Sept Ochre was a little bit more muted. Okay, yeah, that sounds correct. Um, so my question is, uh, what do you use to highlight after Moldy Ochre? Oh, Menoth White highlight. Or Menoth White base, I guess, technically. Uh, because Menoth White, white highlight is, white. is basically white. Yeah, so it's <laughs> what it is is it's kind of like a slightly more yellow or version of bleach bone that's a little bit lighter as well. That's cool. And for the difference here is that when you are doing the actual painting, the majority of the surface area should be your moldy ochre. And then you're almost going more to an edge highlight um, with the uh, the Menoth White highlight or Menoth White base going into there. Yeah, that sounds really good to me because um, I know one thing that I tried in the past when I was messing around with, because um, I've done maybe 10 or 20, um, actually more than that, Whatever. I've painted some Avrilan models. <laughs> yeah, that's why you painted more yellow models than... Hell, your one golden demon orc is more yellow models than Ward's painted. It's oh, probably true. Oh, He's got oh. some yellow on there. But, uh, yeah, so these, these Avrilan models, I had the awesome fortune of starting painting them towards the tail end of the foundation paint era. Oh, no. And then trying to figure out these analogs and replacements and all the rest of it after they got discontinued. Um, so I did try to I did try using some of the really bright um, P3 yellow like I think there's like a sulfurous yellow mm -hmm. some of these other ones but they're like insanely bright vibrant yellows that they mix terribly with the moldy ochre colors yeah so I can very strongly recommend against those that's why I couldn't quite remember if there was another P3 that's better but yeah I think you're right I think that was a separate foundation citadel discontinued yeah. paint. But um, so yeah, don't so don't pay attention. Yes, yeah, the paint that doesn't don't, matter. Don't use sulfurous yellow. You can still buy it, and it will mix terribly with yellow okra. So don't do it. <laughs> yeah, moldy okra. Don't do it. Yes, um, but I found that works. It's a really serviceable yellow, and it looks great. Uh, the other nice thing about a little bit of a darker yellow, or, or more of a natural yellow, is that it's a lot easier to fit it into a, a color scheme. Whereas if you're doing the really vibrant yellows. It's automatically doing a very stark contrast, which you have to manage a lot more carefully with the rest of the colors on the paint scheme. Yeah, absolutely. You're definitely looking at cartoon colors like very quickly. And if you're not using weathering or very careful other similar techniques to take some of the edge off of it, yeah, it can be... If you're going for that certain very like 90s cartoony heavy metal effect, it can look really good. But that's not necessarily your currently in vogue, whatever you want to call it. It's not the, today's style of more... Modern muted. The style of the day? Sure. <laughs> <laughs> the um, soup of the day is moldy okra. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah. <laughs> and the nice thing that I found about uh, this particular mix is it works really well on small details, like rope. Okay. If you just don't even do any transitions, you just do the base coat, wash, reapply base coat, and then moldy ochre and um, the Menoth White base. That's what it cool. just highlights. I used to love desert yellow, which is, again, it's, <laughs> it's long yeah. gone. 
Absolutely. But <laughs> you can do none of the transitions, and I do this all the time for small details on, like, especially my pirates, like all the baubles and everything on their cool jackets, and then the ropes they're carrying. It works really well. Right on. Um, kind of a bit of that yellow color without going too strong. So, Ward, <laughs> if yeah. you were, hypothetically, mm-hmm. to paint an imperial fist to yeah. a high standard, mm-hmm. yeah. what, how would you do it? Actually, I have it written down, the colors that I used, so, and everything. Um, I, I drew inspiration from, um, I forget which way dwarf it was, but uh, I think it was Darren Lathium painted. He <laughs> Shut up, I'm, I'm facing my voice towards the mic. Uh, Darren <laughs> Lathian, I, I believe it was Darren Lathian painted a um, war boss from like the old Battle McCraig starter set in, in Bad Moon Yellow colors. Okay. So that I sounds was, like a thing he'd be paid to do. He would he would get paid yeah. for that painting a bad moon war boss. <laughs> so I originally used like colors from that because I thought it looked amazing for the yellows, and he did. Uh, if you're gonna do chips on the armor, these are the colors that you do, and everything like that. So I thought it was a really good resource. I bought two copies just in case I lost a copy. I took pictures. I have it on my iPad of exactly the colors. <laughs> That's How, awesome. However, they also changed all the colors before I... <laughs> oh, <laughs> fucking Games Workshop. Before I painted the army. So, yeah. So I've had to slightly modify the colors oh, that I'm using. So I actually start with a non-GW color. Um, Airtick. The Model Air Okra. I use that as a base coat with my airbrush. So I basically spray the entire model. Over white or black or brown? With a black. Ooh. So it'll be a little bit darker to start off with, but okay. that's what I want because I start so, with the shading. Just asking. So I did that when I airbrushed my my Earthbreaker, mm-hmm. and it was fucking green. Yeah, I'm a better painter than you, so that's it didn't happen that way for me. So It's also, I guess, maybe it works differently <laughs> on a 28mm instead of a Colossal. Yeah, that, I mean that's that's the that's a big concern. If you're trying to paint yellow over top of a black base coat, it could end up green. However, with the stages of yellow that I go through, it ends up being a pretty vibrant yellow. Could also be a case too. Ward maybe did a few extra like multiple thin coats with the airbrush. Like whereas if you're doing something like the Earthbreaker, doing multiple coats, you'll go through like several pots of paint. Yeah, that's true. <laughs> Just on a single do, figure. Yeah, I mean that is true. I do make sure it's a solid okra color before I progress any further. Hence, the lack of painting. Ta-da! Alright. Okay, so then what? Um, so Hypothetically. The, so then I darken uh, recessed areas. So I'll use a really watered-down Doomble Brown, which was comparable to, I forget the old color that I used. Uh, it was like a flesh tone again, or like a dark brown. Is it similar to like so. Dark Flesh or Vermin? I think it was Dark Flesh. I think like it was that. Dark Flesh. Vermin so brown. It's maybe? got kind of like a red red tone to it. So okay. vermin brown. Or well, vermin brown was very orangey. Orangey. Yeah. yeah, it was darker than that. So I used Doom uh-huh. Doomble. So probably something along the lines of dark flesh or like a P3 Idrian flesh. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Somewhere or, around. Or terracotta, the paint no one used. <laughs> I love that color. <laughs> <laughs> All the good colors discontinued. Um, but yeah, so I'll use Doomball Brown for like shading and such, um, and then I'll start building up my concrete layer of Avalanche Sunset. So it's the darkest yellow is really comparable to that Ian and Dark Sun, which was the base color for the old. 
<laughs> no. Yeah. Um, so then I'll start mixing in different yellows. So there's a half and half mix of Avalon and Uriel, a solid layer of Uriel, uh, a half and half of Flash gets in Uriel, solid layer of Flash gets yellow, and then a small amount of white for a final layer. Okay. So it ends up being quite a vibrant yellow. Um, I do want them to stand out on the tabletop, so they're not going to be uh, the industrial feel. However, I do uh, want to do like some chips and some weathering uh, around their bases and that sort of thing too. That's so. cool. Like definitely like the elbows or the around their feet, that kind of stuff. Yeah. So like parts that you would think that get hit more often, right? So, um, like you said, elbows, um, depending on the knee pad type that they have. Yeah, chips on the edge, so a little bit, like, even on the mask. If Depending on how badly they need a promotion. Yeah. <laughs> that's sort of things. <laughs> oh, this is going to get us into the ultimate debate, isn't it? <laughs> um, but, yeah, so that's, like, my color scheme for that. And then, yeah, everybody's going to be... It's the bases are going to be kind of complementary colors to the yellows, so yeah, blues and whites and grays. So cool. Um, now, when it comes to the the chipping on on yellow, I've actually found chipping yellow is really easy because all you really need to do is uh, what the fuck? It's basically like a black line, a brown line, and a white line. Gets you a basic wood chip on yellow. Really yeah, if you're easily. doing if you're doing the freehand chips, that was kind of one of the old recipes was like black with a little bit of like rusty dark orangey brown in the middle, and then like the lower edge of it will get the um, the white highlight for the yeah. edge glinting off of it. Or if you're using sponge methods, you can use just like chip on a little bit of um, like the duller like a battlefield brown or whatever. Or scorch brown, like yeah, whatever whichever, the dark brown animal. whichever brown fits into your color palette. And then sponge on a little bit of silver after that to make it look like or, a bit deeper, fresher. Yeah, and I also scratches. would sometimes do a little bit of black as well. Yeah. Just to give I'd a little be, bit more depth. Yeah, but it was I'd super be, careful yeah. black. Super careful. I'd be very leery of that because it's so easy to go overboard. But there are so many good examples of weathered Imperial Fists online with the Horse Heresy. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So the, lots of good reference material that you can copy there for sure. The key that I found with the uh, the article that I was using originally uh, was that whatever your base color is for your model, mm-hmm. you mix that with the black as like your chip highlight. So there's a yeah. there's a slight tinge of that in there, right? So and then again, sense. depending on like if it's a newer chip, you use a brighter silver. If it's a darker chip, you'll use a darker silver. That sort of thing. So. Yeah, and honestly, when it comes to any kind of modification you're doing to your model for weathering, mixing in your base color is never a bad idea. No. It helps tie everything in together a little bit more than just, here's an extra bit of color on there. Yeah, absolutely. Keeps things subtle. Which could be somewhat out of place, if need be. Even for things like OSL. So every once in a while. So, Um, Any other yellow tips? We've already covered the fleshy yellow tip. <laughs> that's true. We did. <laughs> but uh, I don't know. That's That seems to cover uh, my stuff for the most part. I guess the other thing, um, you've painted Iron Warriors. Would you, for those yellow and black hazard stripes? The chevrons. Yep. Do you have any tips for that? Because getting that black next to the yellow without screwing it up and taking ten times as long is difficult. Um, well, honestly, the single easiest thing was start with the yellow. Exactly. And then add the black in afterwards. Yep, because uh, black covers. Yellow does not. Yeah, <laughs> and 
then realistically, I've done it both ways, doing a little bit more of a vibrant yellow. Anytime you're doing a smaller detail, you can really get away with doing the um, golden yellow highlighted with sunburst yellow a lot more easily because it's, you're not covering a large surface area that has a lot of real depth, especially yep. a chevron on a bolter. Uh, but I do, I did also do it with the, the same kind of uh, ochre, moldy ochre kind of transition as well, and that works really nice. Cool. I did a little bit of yellow hazard stripes on my battle tech. Battle tech on the heat sinks. <laughs> Sadly, not on the heat sinks. They're oh. generally internal, but uh, no, like around some of like the LRMs and stuff like that. And yeah, I did the same thing where it was just paint the whole thing um, yellow. So I think it was, oh, what was it? Uh, bootstrap leather or something? One of the yellowy brown P3 paints. And then blend that up to the moldy okra, and then just yep. stripes of black with a little bit of a gray highlight on the black edges, and done. Uh, one of the things nothing that crazy I, because it's in that like one two eightieth scale or whatever it is. Yeah. So one of the things that I found for twenty eight millimeter models when you are doing stripes is that I found it really easy to do your base coat for the yellow, or in the case of some of my pirates, the white for the stripy pants. Mm -hmm. Then do the the stripe color, and then highlight up from there instead of highlighting one thing perfectly. And, and this is, if I was doing a competition level figure, I wouldn't do this. But for a gaming figure where you want to have a little bit more pop from a distance, it's, it's a bit easier and you're able to kind of cover your ass a little bit better because as you're going, you can be constantly touching up both stripes. That's fair. Uh, and then highlight up each one separately once the colors are down. So. And if you decide to do black and yellow checker taxi patterns for space clowns, just kill yourself. Yeah. Straight up suicide. But not really. No, please don't. Hobbit <laughs> in Canada does not officially endorse suicide. Unless it's doctor assisted, because that's legal now. Not for next year. Well, Supreme Court said so. Yeah, that's true. But Supreme Court said we shouldn't have. No, this is gonna get way too. <laughs> this is gonna get way too political way in a hurry. Too deep. Anyway, yeah. uh, last uh, remark about yellow is that we didn't play this song. Oh yeah, we were gonna play this song. We were gonna play this. Can this volume up at all? Probably. Yeah. The song's not called Yellow. No, it's a band. It's a band. There we go. Okay, okay. I, think that, that I think that wasted enough airtime. Bueller, Mirror Me Not Get Sued. Yeah, no beats, more. Beats Coldplay, though. Yes, fuck Coldplay. Um, okay, so <laughs> I'm really sad about this, but I don't think any of us played any games this week that we'd have a gutsy or goatsy moment for. Ah, uh, we don't. I was too busy drinking on the one day that I was supposed to play. And I was too busy playing reasonably. So for the moment, <laughs> not just taking massive unnecessary risks. Yeah, I thought I'd actually try to win and not just giggle and roll dice. Next week and I spread them. I got some games lined up for this week, so hopefully I will make some. Oh, I will make. I will make damn certain because I'm going to be playing in a War Machine tournament this weekend as well. That I go out of my way to take lists that will be gutsy or goatsy to ensure that we have gutsy versus goatsy happening. What day? Hooray! Uh, Sunday. Oh, okay. All right. So. Alright, so you might want to still play Saturday night. Yeah, I probably just didn't do it very late, because i got to leave at like 5, because the tournament's in Calgary. Ooh, good luck with that. Yep. Right. <laughs> okay, so unfortunately no gutsy versus goatsy, but don't worry, we are not going to let this one disappear. No, this one ain't going anywhere. <laughs> Internet classic will just be with us till the end of time. Absolutely. <laughs> uh, so just kind of wrap things up. Uh, we've got some events coming up. 
We've mentioned it before, but the Perdita Cup for Malifaux is going to be at All-Star on February 21st. Uh, starting at, registration is at 8.30, games are at 9. It's 50 Soul Stones, Gaining Grounds rules. The only modification we have, if you listened last episode, is that instead of the regular tiebreaker of point differential for the first one, it's whether or not your models are painted will be the first tiebreaker, and then from there it goes into the regular Gaining Grounds ones. I do like that, that's for sure, so... I'm look, sorry, I'm looking at my calendar. The You said the 21st? Yes. Okay, all right. Which is, uh, it'll be a, per, per, hopefully a week after this episode goes up. Yes. So. That is the plan. Uh, other than that, GrotzCon was the 16th, 17th, and 18th of April. So if you want to play War Machine, that'd be a great time to do it, because it's going to be all the War Machines in the world. You know it'd be nice, Tom? Yep. If you didn't lie. Did I lie? Yeah, it's the 17th, 18th, 19th. Oh, no! Okay. So close! <laughs> yeah, well, it's the Friday, Saturday, Sunday, so... Yes. You know, if it started on the Thursday and finished on the Saturday, it'd be a little bit weird. <laughs> so, <laughs> please fact-check us, because we don't fact-check ourselves. Apparently. I just fact-checked Tom. Yeah. Uh, Ward, Tom, are there also, any Also, I was shot tournaments? down over Iraq in a helicopter recently. No, that's also false. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Absolutely. MSNBC joke. I call bullshit. Ward, are there any <laughs> other tournaments coming up in the next month or two? Uh, yes. There is a big one that I like to run called Onslaught. Really? Yeah. What's happening at Onslaught? Uh, there is several game systems going to be played over the weekend of April 11th and 12th. So, for those that are playing the at-home game of paying attention, that's the weekend before GrotzCon. It is the weekend before GrotzCon, the weekend after Easter. So After Easter, after okay. After Easter, so you won't have to wreck your Easter plans. You can still go do that and eat a lot of turkey and, and eat uh, chocolate Easter bunnies. So we get chocolate and turkey, wargaming... And then more wargaming. And then more wargaming, yes. Okay, this sounds like a great month already. Yeah, uh, March, every weekend, there is also a uh, War Machine event, too. So if you play War Machine, there's a lot of events coming up. Yeah, there's one. And if you're one of the Sin Brothers, you get to have your birthdays on big tournament days. Yay! So that they don't get to go. Yay! So, because I can't remember which one's which, so just look into it. One weekend's in Calgary, one's in Red One is Brian, one is David. No, no, but obviously. But the tournaments are one's in Red Deer, one's in Calgary, one's in Edmonton, and one is in Grand Prairie. So yep. Grand Prairie's doing one too, so And Grand Prairie's is the only one that is not a steamroller. They're gonna be doing oh. some kind of a more fun oriented event, so they're mixing it up somehow. Gotcha. We're supposed to stay tuned for details. So uh, by the time this comes out, we'll probably know exactly what's going on. So I, I know I know the 29th is the Red Deer one, and that's the AWI automatic qualifier. That's all I know, because yeah. that's the last thing that I saw. And, and, I, I think, and I remember the last I think the 7th is the one in Edmonton? I think so. And then somewhere in between is Calgary and Grand Prairie. So very true, very true. Have fun, War Machine players. You are spoiled. There's a crap ton of events for you guys. Yes, but if you don't play War Machine, Onslaught will have um, Warhammer 40k, Warhammer Fantasy, War Machine. If you do want to play some more War Machine, okay, with some fancy new mats. Um, yes, that's going to be sweet. There should also be fancy new mats for both 40k and Fantasy. Nice, because those ones are coming in. And then if I get on the ball, Deep Cup Studios. Uh, for those of you that come and play Malifaux for the first time... I'll be there. Uh, there will be some new mats, hopefully. Uh, Infinity will also be a new event that's going to make its uh, showing at Onslaught this spring. And, of course, because I've got new mats for War Machine, 
Infinity will get to use those the next day. Cool. Um, and X-Wing, I believe, would be X-Wing, Dystopian Wars, and Firestorm Armada. So cool. a total Great. of eight systems. And I'm guessing for a lot of the smaller systems, it's uh, you should register quickly because there's only so many spots for them. Yeah, so I mean, especially like the trial systems, um, I'm li- really limiting spots. Um, there's going to be five systems on the Sunday and three on the Saturday. So wow, it'll be a busy sun. Wait, what did I say? <laughs> <laughs> you said five on Sunday and three on Saturday. That is correct. I am I am on the ball here. So that is that is what will be happening. So lots of the smaller systems. Um, and, and smaller um, player allowances will be on the Sunday, but uh, yeah, it should be packed full house either day that you show up. Cool. If not both. I approve. Yeah, sounds great. I know I'll be there playing Malfo for sure, but I'm kind of torn for the other one because it's got Dystopian Wars and War Machine on the same day. Yes, that will be the case. So I don't know what I'm going to do because they're both going to be fun. Yeah. So we'll see. Gotcha. And as always, uh, painting required for Onslaught? Every game will require painting, yes. And Ward, are you going to run 35 or 50 points for War Machine? <laughs> that, I don't want to open up a can of worms on the podcast, so we're just going to let that uh, <laughs> speak for itself when the player gets pack gets released, which should hopefully be the same time as this podcast gets released. So Cool. Yeah. And that'll be, that'll be on Valentine's Day, won't it? 14th? Uh, approximately, yes. So we know everyone's going to have some free time. <laughs> <laughs> Yay, gamers. <laughs> uh, all right. Well, I guess that wraps everything up. So this has been another episode of Hobby Night in Canada. I'm your host, Tom. And I'm Dan. And I am Ward. Oh, yeah. Paint your models and playtest your fucking scenarios. Please. <laughs> <laughs>